Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another segment of the Brown Sugar and Spice Show. I'm your host, Dr. Faye. I want to thank all of my faithful, loyal listeners out there and also all of the newcomers tonight. Once again, thank you for staying up late and tuning into the show. I know I've had a bit of a hiatus, but of course, you know, I'm a resident, so coming up. But we're back for another segment. It's going to be a great show tonight. I have a lot of uh, interesting shows coming up for the spring. But tonight's show, we're going to discuss uh, sexuality and gender in sports. As many of you may or may not know, Candace Wiggins was a um, Stanford a basketball player, extraordinary female athlete, who went on to the WNBA. Uh, based on her recent article, she had a negative experience and decided to divulge that to the press. And of course, there was some backlash from former teammates and coaches as well. But tonight, I'm going to bring on my guest, Mr. Vaughn Bryant, who's also a Sanford grad. He's now a social entrepreneur in Chicago, who is also a former NFL player. So he definitely has experience with locker rooms, different environments, and also just dealing with the sports arena in general, which can be a very unique niche. If you have ever been an athlete, then you will understand exactly what it is that I'm speaking of. So without further delay, let me bring on my guest, Mr. Vaughn Bryant. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise, likewise. So I always get started with my guests. Just give a brief introduction um, about who you are, what is it you do, and I also have a question, just what exactly is a social entrepreneur before we dive off into this conversation? Yeah, so uh, my name is Vaughn Bryant. I'm uh, currently the executive director of the Chicago Literacy Alliance. Um, I am formerly the uh, chief program officer at the Chicago Park District. And uh, actually, uh, in a former life, I was an NFL player. I also worked for the National Football League in a department that is now called Player Engagement. And uh, I define a social entrepreneur as somebody who comes up with creative solutions to social problems. Um, you know, I, I, the three things I care most about is education, uh, human development, and sports. And so uh, most of my career has been in, you know, in those areas. I've been able to combine those things together. And, uh, you know, that means really using sports as a platform for, uh, you know, personal development and uh you know, that I, my my purpose on this earth is to make people's lives better. So that's me. Excellent. Great. So you might be the perfect person for this conversation. And, in fact, I know you are. You know, you're a man with solutions, and you've been 
that please. So let's just get into yeah. meat of the conversation. So, Candace Wiggins, I'm sure to, pretty sure you um, knew her on campus, correct? Or no? Yes. Yep. I was okay. with her on campus. Uh, yeah, I remember when she walked on campus her freshman year. Okay. So, her article. What are your thoughts on that? And I'm pretty sure it's a litany of thoughts. But what are your what are your oh, thoughts? Yeah. On her experiences. Yeah. So, so, so one. One, I think that she, it's clear that she was hurt by her experience. And uh, I think sometimes, you know, when you hurt, when you're hurt, you know, you may sort of uh, express that, uh, you know, in ways that, you know, maybe, you know, there could be different ways to do it. I try not to uh, penalize people for the way they react all the time and to really try to get to the substance, uh, you know, of the issue. And so for me, I really am paying attention to, you know, what was her unique experience in the WNBA and uh, trying to validate her feelings around that and, and really to discuss, you know, how that part could be different for her and, uh, you know, what the WNBA might do to, to ensure that, you know, none of their players have that experience going forward. So, so she made um, a remark that pretty much pissed a lot of people off, especially the statistic, of course, it didn't have um, – it wasn't validated, really wasn't, you know, a basis to her argument, but it was basically illustrative of how she felt when she said that, hey, I feel like 98% of the women in the league are gay, and they were hating on me, joking me, because I'm a beautiful woman, and they're not, and I like men. Um, yeah. So do you think that – that statement alone with the 98% kind of discredited what she had to say or, or invalidated her feelings. No, no. I think that actually illustrates her feelings. I think she probably felt that even, and then she, she clarified that later. I think she just felt like she was immersed in an environment that didn't accept her as a, a heterosexual. And, um, you know, I think if she could do it all over again, she wouldn't paint the whole league with a broad brush like that, um, you know, and because, you know, you and I are removed from the situation, we can kind of look at it a little more objectively. You know, what I would say is that what, to me, what a, what's a bigger invalidation is that if this was really going on, she should have approached a union about that because, you know, that's really a, a, a workplace issue that the union is, is there to handle. And I'm sure um, the league would want to know that and handle that as well. Now, I do understand that there's you know, sometimes difficulty in going and sort of, you know, being a snitch, if you will. But, um, you know, hopefully that's the sort of thing that the the league would want to address, you know, through their life skills program. I'm sure they have, you know, player development um, in uh, the WNBA as well. And there's people whose jobs it is to ensure that, you know, the culture within the teams, uh, you know, is more, is just a safe workplace environment. I understand what you're saying, and I think it sounds, yeah, great on paper, but, I mean, people who have jobs, there's there's always passive-aggressive tactics. Things aren't necessarily overt, regardless right. of, you know, right. how, you're, how you're feeling. Can you really just go to your boss and be like, I'm a grown woman? In fact, I'm a grown-ass woman. Playing in the WNBA, you know, on this huge platform for women's sports, yeah, I feel like I'm being picked on, and how am I going to prove that? Oh, because she pushed me down or she looked at me a certain kind of way. Like, I don't really know the best solution to curtailing bullying or, you know, discrimination, regardless of your sexuality, religious preference, whatever. 
Like, what what is your boss really supposed to do about what happens in the locker room? Well, I mean, it's <laughs> really a it's, a, it's an issue. Yeah, it's an issue between employees. So the first thing is you try to handle it on the court. So if they're playing rough with her on the court, then you know you you know your immediate response is to try to give it to them on the court and to you know combat that by you know playing better and you know out dueling them on the court. But if it's something that is malicious, then yeah, I absolutely think it's appropriate. You often hear. Um, you know, teams having players-only only meetings. I think for me, when it comes to conflict resolution, you confront the person you have the issue with first and foremost and give them an opportunity, you know, to do things differently, and then you escalate it from there if that person doesn't respond, you know, in a favorable way. So, yeah, I think that you could absolutely, you know, start with just going at that back at that person or those people, you know, on the court, and then addressing, you know, sort of under any underlying issues if there's some malicious intent involved. And if that doesn't work, then you got to get, you know, you know, the higher ups involved. That could be the team GM, that could be the coach, you know, it could be the team captain, it could be the union. You have a lot of resources, so um, I, I agree that it can be tough sometimes. But you know, it's it's better to try to handle it in house while you're there. Because if she did that, then it's a different story to be told or maybe no story to be told or maybe it's a victory in, in terms of what story you tell in terms of I had this experience, here's how I addressed it, and here's how we got better as a league. I think, you know, it's obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of people who wish it would ha- was handled in a different way. But, I, again, I don't want to uh, sort of criticize her for the way she handled it because, you know, I understand that people don't always do things in the most ideal way. True, true. I guess I was taken back, uh, taken uh, back by, uh, you know, the public, because I felt like had the roles been reversed, and it would say, uh, you know, a homosexual person who's obviously in this environment, and, and if they felt that way, then it would have been more sympathy or a rally or an outcry about, hey, that's wrong. You should be more inclusive. But people just kind of felt like, oh, this is impossible for a heterosexual to be picked on or felt bullied or marginalized by, you know, a homosexual environment. And I don't know how, you know, what the percentages are, and I'm not trying to speculate or anything like that. But I just felt like there was a deeper issue of, A, inclusion and equality and having the same expectations across the board. Yeah, I think you make a – yeah, you people, make a good point. Yeah, of the people involved, but just in general how the public approaches these types of topics, especially when you have a historically documented group of people who have been marginalized and been mistreated and had to challenge officials for their civil liberties. But, yeah, it just feels like the public feels like, well, we shouldn't say anything, and this particular group is beyond reproach. And we're all human beings. We all have fallacies, and we're all susceptible to ugly behaviors, regardless if we want to admit it or not. I don't know. That was just – I was just all about that because I'm like, I thought the role was to be equal, and to have right. uphold the same expectations across the board. Right. Yeah, and I, I think you make a good point in the sense that inclusion goes both ways and that, you know – we know that there's a marginalized group uh, in terms of the LGBT community. And I think obviously there's, 
you know, a necessary sympathy that we have because historically they are more marginalized, but that doesn't mean that they get that we don't respond sympathetically when the opposite situation is true. You know, similar to how, you know, you know, if we, you know, like when you see people responding uh, to, you know, like if it's a black person or a group of people or, you know, when they beat that white kid uh, in response to some of the police violence, you know, that, that that white person should get just as much sympathy, you know, as, as as the reverse situation when black people are discriminated against. So, so yeah, so I'm with you 100% on that. And I think that the reality is, you know, there's very few people who know what it's like to be the minority in, you know, sort of a LGBT uh, situation, you know, at least alleged, you know, where Candace felt like she was the minority in terms of her sexual orientation. You know, not many people can sympathize with that because how, how often are many of us in that circumstance? And you, again, you like you said in the open, the locker room is a unique environment, and you know, there's, there's only a small group or percentage of the, the of the world that's in that locker room. So, um, so yeah, so it's hard to be sympathetic to a certain extent. Right, and just and that's so partly why we're having this conversation. Correct. And just to broaden the conversation, not to just, you know, focus on female issues, but male issues, because, of course, sexuality, your sexuality isn't, you know, just limited to one sex and your preferences are limited to one sex. And there are, you know, male athletes who are homosexual and who do participate in sports and they're very good at what they do. And I don't, of course, I'm not a guy, so I'm not in the locker room, but I think that will also have to be challenging, especially for a male who's very good at what he, what he does on the gridiron with, you know, it's masculine, it's macho, and yet outside the ground, you know, he's just not that person. And how would that person go about ensuring that, A, he's included, he doesn't feel marginalized, he doesn't feel bullied? Right, yeah, so I, I think that one of the, the differences between, you know, sort of what Candace's circumstance was and what, you know, what a, uh, uh, an experience would be in the NFL is there's so, I think that I actually think there's very few um, gay men playing football. There are some, but so few that um, it doesn't really sort of impact the culture that much, and, and I don't think it comes up that much. It's, you know, sometimes if, if guys on the team know you know, they just don't talk about it, and then they keep it moving. And I know that that has been the case before. And then, you know, I've been, you know, worked with teams where they knew, you know, they absolutely knew and wanted to talk about it. But, you know, to a certain extent, it's up to that person who, you know, is thought to be, um, you know, gay to sort of open up that conversation if they want to have it, which, you know, I think that's partly why uh, Michael Sam coming out before he got to the NFL was a good thing because I think it normalized the conversation. But the reality is for, you know, ever since like the 50s and 60s, there have been gay men in the league. But, you know, gay men or men's uh, sexuality doesn't really come up in conversation. So you can, you know, be in a locker room in college for four years and never have it come up or however long you're on an NFL team. Guys just don't talk about it. It's like, hey, we're going to do what we're going to do on the field. And when we off the field, you know, it's professional. Not every guy even hangs out with his teammates. You know, it's, and it's so many guys on the team. It's like, you know, 58 guys, you know, on the roster, including the, the practice squad. So, you know, what you do in your off, off time, you know, guys are not really tripping about that. So, True. So let me ask you this. So in, in the locker room, it's very private. It can be a very intimate setting. 
in the sense that, I mean, that's where you take, you know, you do your showering, you're walking around, you're free, sometimes new, sometimes not, depending on how liberal you are, you know. But, yeah. okay, so I feel like this is a very, very fine line of A, including someone who's different from you, but at the same time, if you're uncomfortable lifestyle, and this is an intimate setting, at what point do I have the right to protect my values, sense of well-being and not step on somebody else's toes because I, in the end of the day I still have to be comfortable as well right um yeah that's a good question so like I can just kind of give you a little bit of my experience it, it turns out and this is not something that I knew at the time but so in the in our locker room when I was in college your the the locker rooms were numbered so like my number was four so I'm around the people whose number is close to mine and it turns out one of my teammates who was locker was close to mine, he's actually in jail for child pornography. And, you know, for me, like, it wouldn't matter whether a guy was gay or straight or whatever. Like, I'm going to do me. I'm a, you know, m- most guys in the locker room walk around, you know, naked to the shower and walk back. And they don't think twice about it because it just doesn't come up. And that guy never said anything. But in retrospect, I noticed, noticed that this guy, he always was the last guy in the locker room. So he never really showered with the rest of the group. He waited, you know, to the end, whereas somebody like me, I'm trying to get in and out because I'm trying to get a nap or I'm trying to go get something to eat or whatever it is. And I, and I honestly think that because it doesn't come up and guys aren't thinking about it, they just, you know, they just do what they do. And I don't know that the whole comfort thing ever comes up because if it's not spoken and, you know, there's sort of like ignorance is bliss, then, you know, there's no big deal. But if it's a, a circumstance where, you know, what Candace is uh, sort of alluding to, it's more about you feel like almost like your prey in a, in a, in a locker room if there, you feel like the majority of the women are, you know, uh, in the LGBT community and you feel like, you know, maybe they either hit on me or they may be looking at me a certain way. And, you know, that could be uncomfortable if that's the case. I, I, we're not speculating if that was the case, but, you know, that it, it would, I kind of always liken it to if I was on a team of majority gay men, then that might feel different, you know. Just if, if they were hitting on me, then, you know, that probably would be an uncomfortable situation. I have a friend who used to um, be a choir director, and part of the reason he couldn't stick with it is because he – felt uncomfortable being in an environment where he felt like it was the majority of the men were gay and it just didn't work for him culturally. So he just removed himself. True. So this brings up a point. So I, of course, you know, with the outcry and the responses to her article, I think, I think the player was, her name was Boyette. Is that correct? Yeah. Imani Boyette. Imani Imani Boyette. Boyette. Yeah. Yeah. She did, you know, the response and the open letter to Candace and how she felt about it. And I don't know when I guess I'm an outsider looking in and of course I wasn't offended because the alleged jabs weren't directed towards me, but I feel like, I don't know. I didn't feel like Candace painted the league with a broad brush. You know, it was like, well, this is how she felt. And I don't think I disagree with the fact that, Oh, well now this opens up an opportunity to ask female athletes about their sexuality, but I don't, I don't see that as an avenue or a segue into doing that at all. It was just like a conversation, but in the sense of that, I mean, that, that 98% stuck out to me because I feel like 
Candace wasn't perpetual. Those were her experiences, but at the same time, you do have to look at certain sports and the images that we as consumers see on television. They're just a certain look that certain sports have. And so the public kind of just associates this type of personality, this type of culture with this sport. And that's just how I felt about sometimes women basketball may have been painted over the years as the more masculine or masculine females who aren't necessarily heterosexual. And it just is what it is. Right. Now, I hear you. So I would say that the you can't get past the 98%. Like, if you read that without the explanation, then then she did kind of paint them with a broad brush, which is why I think she clarified it uh, after the fact. And I think, you know, I think you're right to the extent that there is an image that's out there. And I think that, you know, as time has gone on, and I think that, you know, I would I would hope that the LGBT community feels like things are better today than perhaps they were 10 years ago. And so, you know, that greater acceptance allows them to potentially be themselves more. And so, you know, whatever that image is they're portraying, if that's truly who they are, then, you know, they have to be that and we have to accept that, you know, but to a certain extent, I think part of what you're saying is they have to accept how people see them as well. And the key to me is, you know, let people be who they are, but as individuals, we still have to treat them with the sort of love and respect and kindness that we would treat anybody regardless of whatever image they portray. Because I think one of the good points that Imani said is Candace's experience speaks more about the people who were, you know, bullying her than it, it says about her. So I always just take it upon myself to no matter what's in front of me, I'm, I have a standard of treatment that I'm going to give people regardless of what they give me. And so, you know, if we all come with that sort of that attitude and that spirit of, how we treat people, then, you know, whatever image they put out there, it shouldn't matter. The key is just don't impose, you know, your standard or your value on other people, which I think that's kind of what Candace was feeling. And, you know, for her, that, that could have been real. We weren't there. But, you know, I certainly wouldn't dismiss it. You know, and then I'll say this. I actually used to work with a, a, a female basketball coach. She coached women's basketball. And she talked about how there was a period when she was playing and coaching where she was sort of in that gay lifestyle um, as well. And so, you know, that speaks to the point of sexuality not being binary. It can be fluid, which is true. But, you know, at the same time, we can't say that culture doesn't matter and that when you're in a dominant culture and perhaps if you don't have the strength of self in who you are, you may be swayed in a particular way. Does that say something about your, you know, sexuality? Perhaps it does. I don't know. Like, it reminds me of, you know, a question I used to ask about, you know, men who go to prison and men who may go to prison straight and then come out gay. Does that mean they were always gay or was it always fluid? And did it just, was it a, you know, sort of environmental thing? Like, I think those are all sort of questions that, you know, people contemplate and think about. But, you know, there's no real sort of definitive answer to those questions. But I do think your environment and culture matters in terms of your, you know, people's behavior, that's that's what sociology is about, how society affects the man. So because it does. Absolutely, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, it was just that, you know, the images that we see on TV, and I don't, I don't find them to be. Because you know, I'm super liberal. I really don't care. You know, whatever makes you happy makes me happy, as long as you're not imposing your views on other people. 
But at the You're same right. time, I feel like sometimes, like, if you have a minority view, it's automatically, like, a backlash. And some of it mm-hmm. could be valid. Some of it cannot be valid. And that, to me, is troubling, regardless if it's they're gay or not gay. That was just, like, my main concern. You know, her experience or her experiences and how they feel. And they absolutely had a right to defend if they disagreed with her statements or sentiment. But I just feel like people should be a little more open to accepting a minority view or an opposing view and getting down to the, A, why did this young woman feel like she was being bullied? Was it, A, was it because of her sexuality or could it just been a personality difference, even though she didn't yeah. quite yeah. be that open to interpretation <clears throat> with such strong statements? But that was just like my main concern when I was reading it and, you know, of course, engaging in dialogue with different people on Facebook. Right. Yeah, it, it, she. It, what I read from it is that, you know, she's, you know, sort of a feminine woman, you know, in more sort of, you know, she carries herself a little more in a, in a, in a glam uh, type of mode where, you know, she's into how, she, you know, her dress and her makeup and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, you know, there was some jealousy that she mentioned in the article and, uh, you know, just her femininity, you know, sort of being something that, you know, they teased her about. So um, that's the part that, that I tend to, tend, tend to get in. You know, I have a daughter, so I, I get like that, you know, girls can be jealous and, you know, that manifests itself in certain ways. And, you know, we, we know that exists, like, you know, how, to the, to what extent it existed, you know, who knows, but, you know, again, I would never invalidate her experience and I, I take her at her word based on how she felt. And, and another point she brought up, um, slightly off topic is that, you know, first I was a female athlete and she was like, well, you know, no one really care about the NBA, WNBA, ticket sales are marginal. And my thing is, how can just in general, across the board, excluding sexuality, whatever, how can female sports in this country at least get to 50% of the viewership that male sports get to? Because we work hard. We work just as hard. Regardless of how you look, what your sexuality is, I don't really care. But I want female athletes to have the same respect that male athletes do. And we are just not at that point. So I actually think that there's sort of two different things at play. I think that female athletes do get the same respect. I think what what the difference is is the public public's view of entertainment value. And I think that's the issue. One of my college teammates used to say that, you know, people and especially men want to see somebody, they want to see an athlete to that can do something that they can't do. So like like track and field athletes I, I mean, I think you guys are revered, whether it's men or women. Like, there's like you're faster than 90% of the men on this planet. So, you know, like I think that people would look at look at you and be like, wow, she's a great athlete. And I think Serena Williams is another example. All female tennis players, I think, you know, they can beat the majority of men. I think basketball is a sport where, you know, uh, there's a whole host of men out there that feel like they can play and play just as well. And so – you know, that part in terms of level of play, you know, it's tough in terms of entertainment value. But I think the fact that you're out there doing it and the discipline you show and the work ethic you show and all of the the, the, the soft skills that you learn through sports, uh, you know, I think people do value and respect that. It's just do I want to watch it as entertainment? You know, perhaps not, but that's not because it's not a respect thing. It's more entertainment. Gotcha. 
And bringing up the point of just femininity and sexuality and gender and female sports, like, do you think that there's a certain expectation that there's a certain level of femininity across the board that this country or people think that female athletes should have? And if they don't, do you think that affects the appreciation for the sport viewership, ticket sales, et cetera. Because I've noticed, I mean, her name's Skylar. I think her name's Skylar Diggins. Yeah. Like, yeah, she's a, yeah. a beautiful girl. Absolutely beautiful, yeah. gorgeous. And she meets today's standards, and she do, she's the epitome of what femininity is, especially for athletes. She had athletes who, is, who have been equally or just as talented as her and didn't really get that type of press coverage. So it often makes me wonder what does this country actually expect from female athletes? And there's just a certain level of femininity that you're supposed to have if you really want the big bucks. And and I even compare, I think it was Maria Sharapova, however pronounced her last name, and Serena yeah, Williams. Yeah, that's right. And, mm-hmm. you know, Serena's a great athlete, phenomenal athlete, one of the best to ever do it. And this could be a racial component as well, but yet you have little Sharapova over here. And she's grossing, I think I read somewhere at one point, one point in time more than Serena Williams. Is it justified? Mm-hmm. No. But she just has that certain look. And I feel like if that were a male, that really wouldn't necessarily be the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that that is a, a very valid point, And I do think that it plays a role. And I actually, I actually would say, and I don't know Skylar Diggins, but I would guess she would agree with this. I don't even think she would consider herself super feminine. I think she has the look that people like this sort of universal. But, you know, when you see, you know, her dress, like, you know, she likes her sneakers and she's kind of hip hop in, in some ways. And, you know, she does, you know, know how to do herself up, but I don't think she would consider herself, you know, like Candace considers herself in terms of being really, really feminine. Um, so, yeah, so I think you're right. And, and it's funny because on your Instagram page, when you were promoting this, um, this, this podcast, I, I noticed that Basketball Beauties League liked the promo, and when I looked at their site, it's like basically a, le- a league full of cute girls playing basketball. And then when you think about the Lingerie Football League, like there are people out there clearly who believe that if you get very attractive women playing sport, that that's going to bring more viewers to the table. And the fact that this even goes on I mean, that that tells you something. That tells you that, you know, it's something that's more catering to men to a certain extent and us wanting to see, you know, attractive women versus we want to see us seeing, like, skilled women in their particular sport. So, yeah, I think from a cultural perspective, that is something that is probably male-driven and something that's trying to cater to the male uh, fan um, in terms of giving them the look and the skill. Because I would guess that these girls aren't as, talented as WNBA players, but, you know, they have a look that maybe bring people to the table. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't know what to say about it. That's this sort of is what it is. It just, you know, I'm, I, I, I won't be buying any tickets. You, you know, who, who gets, you know, who gets these major endorsements versus who doesn't. And I think, you know, looks just play a, a major role in that, even even Absolutely. just basketball, but going into 
uh, the track and field drama that they had. I think it was Absolutely. 2012 Olympics, stuff like that. With you know, you have Lolo Jones, says yep. you know, the Wells and the Don Harpers, and they were kicking her butt on the track. But yet, yeah, she had a great marketing machine behind her, or was it just you know, because the way she looked and she was, it was more the look, yeah, male eye, and she would you know generate more sales for magazines. So I don't know. Yeah. There, there seems to be a proverbial glass ceiling for women sports, just in general. And a lot to of be, it to be a mega star, yeah, to be yeah. a mega star. That's true because remember Anna Kornikova, she's another example. She never even won a, a, a major championship. Who is who was I talking about? Did I say Maria Sharapova? Whatever. Okay. Yeah, no, no, they're both. It's, it's two. They're both. They're both Russian uh, tennis players. Uh, the the most the most recent is Sharapova, but before her was Anna Kornikova. She was a she was a mega star in terms of endorsements, but she never won. At least Sharapova won uh, matches. Like you, like her. I think I, I can be okay with her because she does have both the look and some skill. So obviously she's not Serena, but she did. She has won several championships, and then even going back before her it was Jennifer Capriati. You know, sort of an all-American girl. She had to look Chris Everett Lloyd. You know, versus Martina Navratilova. You know, I'm take I'm taking you back. You know, far. I'm not sure how old our listeners are, but you know, I'm just saying that to say that, you know, since the beginning of time, you know, looks and women. That's something that you know is is something that's valued. And I'm not saying that's I'm not. I don't think that's necessarily the the right value, but that is the society we live in for sure. <sighs> We have so far to go. Far to go. <laughs> but but you didn't you didn't have that issue. You had the look and the talent, so you know you all right. But I but <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. But I was I just like it to be equal for all. You know, if a woman I don't care what she looks like, if she can dunk and she is you know six foot five and she's doing a thing that I think should be recognized. I agree. I agree. And I think that there is a recognition. I just think that there's clearly uh, another level you go to if you can add the look to it. So, I mean, I think that's actually kind of true for men and women um, in that sense. Like, I think, you know, men who have a particular look can, you know, they, they, you know, I think that there's more opportunities for them, too. I just think it's less prevalent and, and more of an issue for women than it is for men. Um, but, yeah, so now I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, I, I don't know how we're going to get to a society where looks won't matter as much. I mean, think about, like, social media and how much people put themselves out there and all of the things that women are doing to alter their look these days. I mean, I, it, I feel for women in that sense because it's like, wow, like, people, you know, there's a lot of – there's an industry, you know, Oh, it's called Instagram. You know, it's called what? Instagram. What's called? <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> it's a very um, yeah. I I was raised with a little more conservative values to each their own, but just my observation. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I hear you. So let me, let me ask you this, and then we can wrap up. So switching mm-hmm. over to males. So do you think we have reached that point? where a male who's gay can come out, openly come out as gay before a draft. and Because you really can't say, oh, this person dropped 
however many rounds or spots, however that goes, based on their sexuality. But they're projected to go in a certain round. They have a decent combine, and all of a sudden there's this social stigma that's still associated with being homosexual in this country. We, 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 we just haven't gotten there yet. Do you still think it's wise for a that, or to just keep their mouth shut, make their money, and get out? I think I think you can actually do it today. I think Michael Sam broke that barrier, and I hope people don't assume that he was drafted in the seventh round because uh, he's he came out as gay. I mean, the reality is for like football experts, people who know the sport, when he won um, a Player of the Year in the SEC, which typically the Player of the Year is going to be a high round draft pick, he you could not compare him and his talent level to previous winners um, because he just had a very good beginning of the season against some, you know, marginal talent. And then the second half of the season when they were playing better talent, you know, he didn't do much. So um, when you just look at his size, his speed, his numbers, you know, he was, he was a marginal player. And I honestly think that, you know, he was, you know, I think that he was drafted partially because, you know, he came out as gay and the Rams, you know, the Rams drafted him, but they have one of the best defensive lines in the league. There was, it was going to be hard for him to make that team anyway. But I think, you know, it was good that he did get drafted because I think it sets the platform for the next guy to come around and come out. But I guarantee you, if there's a guy who comes out and he has the side and the size and the speed and the skill on tape, God, they're not going to, they're going to take him where he's supposed to go. I don't think any team is going to not. Nah, it's similar to, and I, I hate the, I don't. I hate to compare um, sort of uh, sexual orientation and race, but Christian McCaffrey and what he's going through, feeling like you know people sort of don't give him the respect he deserves because he's white. Like he's gonna be a high round pick. Like he's gonna be a late first round, second round pick. He will not get out of the second round, and, and I actually think that's appropriate. Like he is a you know late first round, second round pick because his size doesn't dictate that he's gonna be a every down back. Um, I was reading somewhere about him. I'm sorry, we're totally off topic right now, but it's okay. Yeah, what was up with his bench press, though? I mean, he's a he's a he's a small guy. Like he's he's about 200 pounds, like maybe 205. His game isn't strength that way. Like his strength mostly is in the lower half. Like as long as he his legs can churn and he can break tackles with his legs. That's the most important thing. Like, and he'll get stronger uh, as time goes on. I, I wouldn't worry about that. Like, he's similar to a Reggie Bush um, type of player. Reggie Bush, I think, went too high uh, in the draft. I guarantee you uh, NFL scouts would tell you or experts would tell you that he shouldn't have gone even as high as he did because he was just, he's just too small to be an every down back. But they're probably similar in terms of uh, speed and, and uh, size and strength. Cool, cool. Well, thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming on to the show. Greatly appreciate it. Um, Absolutely. This was fun. <laughs> we'll hope to have you back soon. So you can tell the listeners out there, you know, where they can reach you. If you have a Twitter handle, you're on Facebook. If your company, you know, has a website, promote yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So on Twitter, you can find me at, at Vaughn Derek. Um, that's Twitter and IG, the same, at Vaughn Derek. And then the website to my Organization is Chicago Literacy Alliance dot org. Um, you know, check me out. Cool, cool. But there you have it, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us tonight. Uh, we will be back very soon uh, with the show on child support. Should be interesting if you have any of those folks in North.
will actually have a lawyer on board who deals with family court cases. So looking forward to that. But once again, Mr. Bryant, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a great show. Thank you so much, you guys, for listening and tuning in to the show. Um, Mr. Brian is a friend of mine. He was actually one of the first people I met when I walked into Sanford campus several years ago. I'm not going to tell you my age (laughs) as a freshman. But again, once again, thank you for listening. Dope show. Have a good night. Peace. Yeah.